This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the audiobook Last Exit by Jason R. Davis, narrated by Darren Marlar. It's the dark and lonely road. You drive, you're tired and falling asleep behind the wheel. The windows are down, the cool air blowing through your hair as you crank up the stereo. ACDC blares on the radio and you're screaming out the chorus. Then a set of headlights emerges from the darkness and your night has become a nightmare. Welcome to Last Exit, an anthology of 17 horrific tales where life on the road can sometimes take a dark and unexpected turn. Last Exit by Jason R. Davis. Hear a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Winter, 1913. On a frosty and dark winter night, a misty coldness descended upon New York. The cold crept along the parks and streets of the Bronx, seeping in through every crack and crevice of every respectful home scattered about. Near the Mosholo Parkway, just below the dense tree line that existed back then, something strange lurked. A creature described as werewolf-like by those unlucky enough to have stumbled across its path at night. Even more astonishing was the fact that many were also describing a soft glow emanating from the creature. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is a special Weekend Archive episode of Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. And if you're already a fan of the show, please help spread the word about the podcast. You can do that by leaving a rating and review of the podcast in the app that you listen from, and also share a link to this episode with a couple of your friends and on your social media, and thanks in advance for doing so. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weekend archives of Weird Darkness. My father passed away of cancer when I was 15 years old. He'd been sick for a long time, going through periods of getting better and then worse again. He was an engineer and a tech geek and had installed an internal phone network in our three-story house. Each of the rooms had a telephone, and we could call each other as well as make outside calls. The internal and external ringtones were different. Two or three months after my dad passed away, I was home alone doing laundry. The clothes dryer was in our basement, right by my dad's old room or man cave. As I was standing there, 
the phone in his room started ringing with the ringtone for internal calls. I didn't feel threatened in any way, just surprised. So I walked over and picked up. There was nobody on the line, just silence. When I went upstairs, I saw that the handheld telephone on the first floor was picked up. When my mom came home, I told her about what had happened. She looked at me and said, Oh no, don't tell me it happened again. She then told me that the same thing had happened to her a few weeks prior. I never heard anything again, but I'm certain it was my dad. The phone had some significance because on the day he passed away, phone records show he tried calling my mom over and over from the hospital but could not get through to her for some reason. By the time the hospital called, he had lost consciousness, so she never got to talk to him again. I like to believe that he was trying to tell us that he was okay, especially since I never felt threatened in any way. This happened almost 15 years ago, but it has certainly shaped the way I see the world. I had never been a spiritual person, but now I understand that there are things beyond my understanding. Winter, 1913. On a frosty and dark winter night, a misty coldness descended upon New York. The cold crept along the parks and streets of the Bronx, seeping in through every crack and crevice of every respectful home scattered about. Near the Basholo Parkway, just below the dense tree line that existed back then, something strange lurked. A creature described as werewolf-like by those unlucky enough to have stumbled across its path at night. Even more astonishing was the fact that many were also describing a soft glow emanating from the creature. Many believed this to be a rumor. However, one late December night, the creature stepped out of the shadows and into the sleepy streets of the Bronx. That night, the phones rang off the hooks at the Kingsbridge police station. The reports were bizarre and the callers sounded frantic. Whatever it was that the callers were reporting undoubtedly sent extra chills down their spines that cold night. A horrible beast, a mutated canine of sorts with a pair of glowing eyes. However absurd or horrifying the reports seemed, the Bronx precinct had a duty to venture out in the cold and investigate. That night, the Kingsbridge station sent down a few of their men to investigate the source of these frantic callers. Kingsbridge's police captain, Matt McKeon, issued an alert to his squad to be on the lookout for the supposed werewolf as well as a recent mugging that had occurred near the Masholu Parkway. While patrolling the desolate parkway, Officer McKiernan came across four suspicious men who were loitering around an unlit area of the parkway. Thinking that these might be the muggers, he approached the four men. The men suddenly took off running in different directions, and a short chase ensued, ending with Officer McKiernan catching one of the suspects. 
As the policeman cuffed the perp, a sudden sharp pain shot up the officer's leg. Looking down at his leg, he was horrified to see what he could only describe as a phosphorus-covered hound clamping down on his boot. The officer acted quickly and used his nightstick to deliver a heavy blow to the creature's skull, forcing it to release the officer's leg from its vice-like grip. The officer and his perp were able to get away from the glowing creature and make it back to the precinct safely. After booking the man at the station, the officer told the rest of the men what transpired out by the parkway. Soon, a squad of the men from Kingsbridge Precinct made their way to the exact spot the beast had taken a beating from the frightened officer's nightstick. To their relief, there was no beast in sight. No glowing set of eyes, no bulking canine dosed in a phosphorus glow. The parkway remained still, frozen in an eerie silence, until the warming sun broke. A soft morning glow that pushed back the icy shadows and its eerie inhabitants for at least another day that winter in 1913. The report of this bizarre claim comes from the 1913 December 19th edition of the Santa Fe New Mexican newspaper. What the residents of the Bronx experienced that December night we will probably never know. However, the question remains, what caused them to think this could have been a glowing werewolf? Could it have been over-imagination? or possibly an episode of mass hysteria in the Bronx. Skinwalker stories are not a product of modern entertainment or Hollywood. The stories come from generations of Native Americans from all over the U.S., from people of this land that honed the peculiar skill of observation, observing nature and animals to learn how to live off the land and be in harmony with Mother Earth. From them, the stories of skinwalkers and were-creatures come from here in the States. To this day, many people from different backgrounds claim to have come across creatures that resemble six-foot-tall timber wolves walking and running on two legs, bipedal upright canids that differ in description from Sasquatch sightings. Whether you believe it or not, people are still reporting them to this day. One of my first memories as a child was a funeral, my uncle's funeral. He was my mom's half-brother and considerably younger than her as he was from her dad's second marriage. I think he was in his mid-twenties and he was addicted to ecstasy. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. Since he was addicted to the high, he started to get depressed whenever he wasn't high and ended up committing suicide. He hung himself in his bedroom. How do you explain that to a four-year-old? I don't know if my mom told me about the hanging back then, but I knew that he had killed himself. I remember my mom telling me that he thought no one loved him and that's why he did it. She doesn't remember telling me this, but I remember. I remember blaming myself for his death. I was always afraid of older men when I was young. I'm not sure why. I think I was just a really shy kid. I never wanted to play with my uncle, and I always avoided him. 
At four years old, I thought that he killed himself because of me. I know now that that's not true, but I still feel guilty about never wanting to spend time with him. The most vivid memory I have of the funeral is playing a game with my sister and my two cousins. It was called Inky Pinky Ponky. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but I've never heard anyone mention it since that day. I've heard of similar versions of the game, but not the same as this one. In this game, one person is the leader and everyone else stands in a circle with their fists held out in the middle. The leader thumps everyone's fists around the circle saying this rhyme, Inky Pinky Ponky Daddy Bought a Donkey, Donkey Died, Daddy Cried, Inky Pinky Ponky. Whoever's fist the leader lands on, on the last word, has to put that hand behind their back, and then it repeats until only one person is left with a hand in. They're the winner. At four years old, I really hated that game. My uncle's death was the first death I had ever had to cope with, and singing about a dead donkey did not help me much. I always thought being afraid of death was a normal fear that everyone had, but my fear went deeper. I refused to watch any movies where characters died. I didn't watch The Lion King until I was about 16 years old. I was terrified of hospitals and I still won't go in one unless I absolutely have to. I was always afraid to go to sleep when I was young and I think it had something to do with the fact that going to sleep and dying seemed so similar. Parents often explain death as going to sleep forever. I'm not sure if that's how my parents explained it to me, but it certainly would explain it. Perhaps my fear of sleep also stemmed from the nightmares I used to have. One in particular is so silly now that I look back on it. I dreamt that I was running away from a witch in the forest. She eventually caught me, brought me back to her house, and tried to cook and eat me. Of course, I woke up before that happened. Another time when I was older, I dreamt that I had done something bad at school and they were going to punish me with the death penalty. I begged my parents to do something about it, but they just shrugged it off. I woke up as I was sitting in the electric chair. One dream that I remember the least and probably affected me the most, I dreamt of a funeral, but not just any funeral, a funeral for a baby. The only image I still remember from this dream is a tiny little coffin. That image haunted me throughout my childhood. A few years ago, I was going through old photos on a rainy afternoon. I sat on the floor of the living room, flipping through the albums, admiring how cute I was. Then I went through a box of photos which was mostly doubles or just pictures that had never made it into the album. Toward the end of the box, I found a card with a picture of a baby on it. The baby kind of looked like me, but I knew it wasn't because it said Peter on it. I didn't bother to open the card, I just turned to my mom and asked her who it was. Oh, that's the funeral card from when your Aunt Susan's baby died. Aunt Susan had a baby? I asked. Sort of. The baby was stillborn at about seven months. He was the closest to full term she had ever reached, so they had a funeral for the baby. You were there. 
My mom's casual retelling of the events flooded my mind with images. It all came back to me before I could even blink. My dream of the baby's funeral wasn't just a dream. It had actually happened. I was just too young to remember. The baby died when I was about three, almost four, about six months before my uncle's funeral. My brain was unable to retain that memory, but the nightmare that haunted me for years after stuck with me. One day, when I was about 14 years old, my mom got a phone call. She sat at the table crying on the phone and I knew something was terribly wrong. I stood a few feet from her, tears running down my face too, even though I didn't know what happened. I've always been a sympathetic crier, especially when it comes to my mom. She held the phone in her lap when the conversation was over and told me that my Aunt Diana had died. She was my mom's sister and they hadn't spoken in years due to drama between them and my grandmother. But still, she was her sister. I held my mom's head in my arms and we both cried for several more minutes. Then she had to go downstairs. My grandmother lived in our basement and my mom had to tell her. No way was I going to be a part of that. I can only imagine the pain someone feels when they find out their child has died. It wasn't entirely a shock. We knew she had a brain tumor, but that didn't make it much less sad. I went to sit on the couch while my mom broke the news. Behind our couch, on a ledge, we had this clock. It was a German carousel clock and I liked to watch as the little gold balls of the carousel spun around and around. I think in a way it soothed me. Watching time tick by as the carousel spun was relaxing, much like the waves of the ocean flowing in and out. I turned around to watch the clock, but the carousel had stopped spinning. The time on the clock was 3.47. I checked the clock on the VCR, which said it was 4.22. I sat on the couch with my hands in my lap thinking about my aunt. I thought about how my mom must have felt. I wondered if she felt guilty for not speaking to her for all that time just like I had felt guilty for never spending time with my uncle before he died. My mom came back upstairs a few minutes later. She started walking towards the other couch to sit down when her eyes fixed on the clock. That's it, she said. She grabbed the clock, lifted up the glass dome, and took the batteries out. She marched to the garage and tossed them in the bin where we put dead batteries. She returned to the living room, looking exasperated. Of course, she would be upset. Her sister had just died, but why all the commotion over a clock? Mom, what's wrong? I asked. That godforsaken clock, she muttered, rubbing her forehead with one hand. It's just a clock, Mom. What's the big deal? She sat next to me on the couch, and it seemed like she was trying to compose herself before she spoke again. I've never told you this before. But I was married once, before I married your dad. His name was Patrick. He was a few years older than me and I was so in love. He asked me to marry him when I was only 19 and I was head over heels for the guy so I said yes. We were married about a year after that. We got that clock as a wedding present from one of his relatives. I had always thought that the clock was a wedding present because we called it an anniversary clock. 
I don't know if that was a real name for it, but that's what we called it. I assumed it was from my parents' wedding, and I had never bothered to ask about it. It was just a clock, after all. She continued, Anyway, one day, he got into a car accident. While he was in the hospital, they had to do some brain scans to make sure there was no bleeding. That was when they found the brain tumor. Patrick had always suffered from headaches, but it had just become a part of his life, and he never bothered to do anything about it. Turns out the tumor had probably been there since he was born, and his brain had just formed around it, still allowing him to function normally. He was fine for a while, but eventually he ended up in the hospital for good. They couldn't operate on it because the tumor had spread out in little lines. If it had just been one solid mass, they could have tried to remove it. His last few months went by painfully slowly. He was basically completely unresponsive, but I stayed by his side as long as I could. I was relieved when he finally took his last breath. I was utterly awestruck at my mom's story. I couldn't believe that she had kept it a secret for this long. She never made eye contact with me while she spoke. She just looked down. And I suspect that she was trying to hide her tears from me. She probably didn't want me to cry again, too. So that night, when I went home from the hospital, that clock had stopped at 7.06. I remember the time specifically because that was Patrick's time of death, 7.06 p.m. I didn't think much of it at the time, just a weird coincidence. It took me a long time to replace the batteries because it took me a long time to get back to normal. I didn't eat for days after he died. I didn't do much of anything for a long time. And then I met your dad, several years later. It was around the time that we moved in together that I put batteries back in the clock. It worked fine for a few years after that. The carousel kept spinning, and then one day it stopped again. That was the day your dad's grandma died. I started to get a little suspicious at that point, but I couldn't be sure that it stopped at the exact same time. So I put batteries in it again, and again it stopped. That was the day your uncle died. I asked Grandpa when exactly he had died, and he said it must have been around 3 a.m. Sure enough, that was when the clock had stopped. I didn't put batteries back in for a few years, but then I finally decided that it was silly to think that a clock could tell when people died, but now it's stopped again, at 3.47. Grandpa said she just died not too long ago, probably about 45 minutes ago. So that's it. I'm not putting any more batteries in it. It might still be a coincidence, but I'm not going to take that chance. I suppose the clock could very well be a regular clock, but ever since my mom took those batteries out for good, no one in my family has died. My grandmother's almost 80. Same with my grandfather. My dad's parents are both 92. Recently, my dad's father had another stroke. It was his fourth in the last few years. Each time, his recovery has taken longer and longer. At first, he would try to speak, but no one could understand him. Eventually, he just got frustrated and stopped trying. He would sit in his bed, staring at the wall while everyone talked around him. After this last stroke, he hasn't even tried to speak again. I can tell that he's miserable. 
I never understood why people were forced to suffer like that. Sitting in a hospital bed and being fed through a tube is no way to live, and certainly not how I want to remember my grandfather. He was always kind of a quirky guy. He's been almost completely deaf for as long as I can remember, so we never really talked much. He scared me as a kid because he was always yelling. But he was a proud man. He owned his business and provided for his family. It was a jewelry store, and he specialized in repairing watches. He kept that business going until after his second stroke when we had to put him in a nursing home. He was about 85 at the time. He could have retired whenever he wanted to, but he loved that store and he loved what he did. I only remember one specific conversation he had with me and my sister. I remember it was just the three of us in the house. I even remember where we stood in the living room. She showed us a picture of his father and told us about what a great man he was. He would always tell me and my brothers that time is precious, time is a gift and it should never be wasted. He gave me this watch when I was young and told me to always make the most of every second. (laughs) Far from it. So as I rummage through this drawer at my parents' house, I think about all the good memories I had with my grandfather. I try to forget about what he looks like right now, hooked up to all those machines, his lifeless eyes unmoving. Death still terrifies me, but I think it's better than a life like that. Ah, there they are. Two double A's. Spontaneous human combustion, or SHC, is a well-known but unexplained phenomenon when the human body bursts into flames without any external source of flammable ignition. During the last 300 years, at least 200 cases of SHC have been registered around the world, but it's not exactly correct. The SHC phenomenon was mentioned much earlier, for example by a Roman poet and philosopher Titus Lucretius Carus, 98-55 BC. Throughout history, many more cases of SHC could occur, but they have never been officially recorded. A very popular and long-existing theory says that the victims of spontaneous combustion drank lots of alcohol, which, as a flammable liquid, could cause the combustion process. But how do we explain SHC victims who never were heavy drinkers. Other theories blame obesity, increased body weight caused by excessive accumulation of fat, static electricity, and divine intervention. On April 4, 1731, the Countess of Sassina, Italy was found burnt to death on the floor of her bedroom. All what's left of the Countess's body were her stockinged legs and the rest of her head. Also, a greasy soot was again found like in other similar cases of SHC. Many other SHC incidents inspired Charles Dickens, the great English novelist who described the phenomenon in his novel Bleak House. Almost immediately, he was attacked by critics who considered SHC acts as incapable of occurring and rather an irrational belief. Dickens, who carefully researched the phenomenon based on about 30 cases, could easily defend himself. 
There's a certain pattern in all SHC incidents no matter whether the case is old or modern. Police and fire experts usually find burned corpses except for the extremities and no burned furniture. Also, the alcoholism theory seems to be insufficient to explain all mysterious cases of SHC. One minute they may be relaxing in a chair, the next they erupt into a fireball. Jets of blue fire shoot from their bodies like flames from a blowtorch, and within half an hour they are reduced to a pile of ash. Typically the legs remain unscathed, sticking out grotesquely from the smoking cinders. Nearby objects, a pile of newspapers on the armrest, for example, are untouched, the Cambridge professor Brian J. Ford said. Professor Ford is a research biologist and author of more than 30 books, most about cell biology and microscopy, but he's turned his attention to the mechanisms behind why people explode. The most recent SHC case was that of an Irish coroner, 76-year-old Michael Faherty, who died on December 22, 2010. West Galway coroner Siren McLaughlin recorded the cause of death as spontaneous human combustion. This is the first reported case of spontaneous human combustion in Ireland's history. The fire had been confined to the sitting room, the BBC reported. The only damage was to the body, which was totally burnt, the ceiling above him and the floor underneath him. No accelerant was found, nor any signs of foul play. Professor Ford wanted to disprove the alcoholism theory, along with the so-called wick effect suggested by London coroner Gavin Thurston in 1961. Thurston had described how human fat burns at about 250 degrees Celsius, but if melted, it will combust on a wick, such as clothes or other material, at room temperatures. I felt it was time to test the realities, so we marinated pork abdominal tissue in ethanol for a week. Even when cloaked in gauze moistened with alcohol, it would not burn. Alcohol is not normally present in our tissues, but there is one flammable constituent in the body that can greatly increase in concentration. The body creates acetone, which is highly flammable. A range of conditions can produce ketosis in which acetone is formed, including alcoholism, fat-free dieting, diabetes, and even teething, Ford explained. So we marinated pork tissue in acetone rather than ethanol. This was used to make scale models of humans, which we clothed and set alight. They burned to ash within half an hour. For the first time, a feasible cause of human combustion has been experimentally demonstrated. Hey, weirdos. So the folks at MyPillow, they said, hey, Darren, can you try out a MyPillow and let us know what you think? Well, I was skeptical. I mean, it's a pillow, right? But, well, what did I have to lose? So, you know, I'll tell you what I lost. I lost interrupted sleep. Yeah, no more folding the pillow in half, no more flat, lifeless pillows, no more using two pillows to get comfortable, which I've been doing for years. This really changed the way I sleep for the better. So, I'm letting you know. You need my pillow. Well, not my pillow, but you need a my pillow of your own. 
Why? Well, it stays cool all night long, so you're not waking up at 3 a.m. to flip to the cool side of the pillow. That was always so annoying to me. Uh, it also keeps its shape. You're not reshaping your pillow in the middle of the night. It also comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee, so if you do try it and you decide it's just not for you, no big deal. You can return it. Now, if you do decide to keep it, check this out. It comes with a 10-year warranty. A 10-year warranty. Tell me your pillow has a 10-year warranty. I don't think it does, but my pillow does. And you can toss it right into your washer and dryer and it's like brand new again. Try doing that with your current pillow and see what happens. These are just a few of the reasons I really am loving my pillow. And right now, as a special welcome to the podcast and a special deal for you, my weirdo family, you can get two premium pillows. Those are the good ones. Two premium my pillows for one low price. Just go to mypillow.com and enter the promo code WEIRD. That's mypillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. Or you can call 800 945 7192. That's 800-945-7192 or visit MyPillow.com. Either way, just be sure to use that promo code WEIRD. I was about 14 and sleeping. In my sleep, I watched this thing float up two steps on a landing, turn the corner and float up the stairs. It was probably about six feet tall, wearing a black robe, the kind you see in the movies worn by old monks or something. It wore the original hoodie. It was a loose, rough, dark cloth tied with a rope at the waist. I was in a big house with three bedrooms up top and a big area in the center instead of a hallway. My bed was straight across the room from my parents' bed, and there was another room space between us. It was built like an old-fashioned log cabin, so it was kind of all open spaces. I watched this thing pass right by the foot of my bed, but it ignored me totally. It passed me and looked down at my sister to my right then turned and slowly went to the other room and stopped right over my mom and was looking down at her. I freaked out in my sleep and sat bolt upright in my bed. I was never, ever so happy to be awake. But then I realized that it was just a dream. I let out a huge breath of air. Until that is, I noticed it was actually still right there just where it had been in my dream, its hood hiding its face. The thing was still there. Fear gripped me so hard I couldn't breathe for a few seconds, but it seemed like forever. Then it raised its hand slowly into the air, and that is when I noticed that it held a slightly curved knife in its hand. I screamed out, Mom! But it came out like a squeak. My sister didn't even wake up. Instantly, my mom told me to get up in her do-it-now voice and turn the light on. It was a pull-chain light, like a ceiling fan in the middle of the big room. It was so dark I couldn't see anything. I had to stand about 10 feet away from this thing and wave my hands around just to find this tiny pull-chain. 
I couldn't move. I was petrified. Back in the day, though, you always did as you were told. So I did. After the second time, she ordered me to turn the light on. I was horrified to my bones. The thing I dreamed about was actually right there within touching distance of me. I had been asleep, but now I was actually awake and I wasn't the only one seeing it. Somehow I found the chain on the first try and the light sprang into the room and it just disappeared in the light. My mom and dad were both awake already and praying. My dad had recently found Jesus and it had totally changed his life. He was a changed man and we were a really tight family with a lot of love and affection. Everyone loved my mom and dad. We had to have two funeral services for my parents when they died recently in two different states, and both places were full of people. So yes, I blame my parents for this one. I swear this is the truth, and I also swear that was totally my come-to-Jesus moment. I begged God to never, ever let me see anything like that again. I have felt weird stuff since then, but I have never seen it again. I pray I never do. It scares me so bad just thinking about it. I don't think I've ever written it down before now. It still scares me to this day. I'm in my 50s now. That is how bad it was. During my last visit to the Alamo, I saw a young man striding toward me looking like he knew where he was going. I watched him walk across the ruins and I thought he was a reenactor. He was over six feet, bearded and his hair was dark brown, slightly curling and loose to his collar. He was dressed in very authentic-looking period costume. His rust-colored trousers were tucked into black high boots that showed stirrup wear. He wore a wide belt of plain dark brown leather with a simple brass buckle. But it was his shirt that impressed me most. It was made of heavy, old-fashioned, off-white broadcloth. It had a pointed collar and a placket in front, and the ties at the top of the placket were undone. I watched him until he was so close that staring any longer would have caught his attention. I looked down at the nearest display case until I felt him walk past, and when I looked up, he was gone. He was too noticeable to lose in the crowd, and I did not see how he could have made it to the door in the length of time I had taken my eye off of him, but I shrugged it off. Later, I recounted the incident to a friend and told her that I thought he was a member of staff who was dressed in period costume. She grew very silent and then she said, they do not dress their staff in period costumes. I got a real chill then. So what the hell did I see? This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the audiobook Theodore the Great, Conservative Crusader by Daniel Ruddy narrated by Darren Marlar.
Theodore Roosevelt has a complicated legacy. To some, he was the quintessential American patriot and hero, a valiant soldier and hawkish leader. Others remember him as the progressive cultural icon, the trust-buster who split from the Republican Party. So who was the real Teddy Roosevelt? Daniel Ruddy's new biography cuts through the impenetrable tangle of misconceptions and contradictions that have grown up over the last century and obscured our view of a man who remains one of the most controversial and misunderstood presidents in U.S. history. Weighing Roosevelt's lifetime of actions against his sometimes contradictory progressive rhetoric, Ruddy paints a portrait of a man who led by undeniably conservative principles but who obfuscated his own legacy with populist speeches. By focusing on Roosevelt's actions and his effect on American history, Ruddy clears the cobwebs and presents a real and convincing case for remembering Theodore Roosevelt as a great conservative leader. Theodore the Great, Conservative Crusader by Daniel Ruddy, narrated by Darren Marlar. To hear a free sample from this book or to add it to your collection, visit the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. In the ancient village of Langernau, Conwy, North Wales, stands one of the world's oldest trees. This beautiful yew was planted in a small churchyard of St. Digane's Church sometime in the prehistoric Bronze Age. It's about 4,000 years old, and it is still growing. Being the oldest tree in Wales, Langernew Yew is not just beautiful, but it also is associated with an ancient legend, intertwining it with a spirit prophesying death. Locals say the Langernew Yew is inhabited by an ancient spirit known as Angel Store, the Recording Angel. From Welsh mythology, we can learn that each year on Halloween and July 31st, the spirit is said to appear in the church and solemnly announces in Welsh the names of those parish members who will die within the year. Those wishing to find if their names were among the angel's list gather beneath the east window of the church and listen very closely. It is said that one day a local man named Sion Aprobet declared he was skeptical of the death prophecy. He decided to challenge the existence of the spirit one Halloween night. On entering the church, he heard his own name called out. Hold on, I'm not ready yet, he contested but it was too late. He died within the year. Today, many villagers in Langernew still believe in the supernatural being that has lived inside the Langernew U for thousands of years. The church at Langernew is itself centuries old, but the site it stands on was sacred thousands of years before it was built. Cold darkness permeated Brooklyn's east side one night in 1894. Under a bright moonlight, 
The cobblestone streets glistened as a thick fog poured over them. The fog that made its way down the hills surrounding Brooklyn's Ward 27, an area surrounded by cemeteries that were almost as old as the dark, wet dirt that fills them. On these empty streets, five young women found themselves ankle-deep in a coiling fog. In a hurry, they decided to cut across an empty lot near Knickerbocker Avenue. As the ladies made their way through the lot, something made them stop dead in their tracks, something white up ahead. The wafting fog grew more and more as the women shivered together. Just then, a hysterical cry ripped through the fog, sending a bolt of lightning down their chilled spines. Before any of them could move, much less utter a word, the white blob got closer, and soon they were able to make out the ghastly image through the fog. A sunken-faced woman covered in a white garb wading through the dark night's fog. The five of them then ran the other direction and got to the safety of their homes in one breath. Upon hearing their terrifying ordeal, the women's brothers all gathered near the lot of the incident. They were armed to the bone and ready to confront the ghostly apparition. The young men found themselves huddled together, backs against each other in a barren lot near what is now Bushwick Avenue in Brooklyn. It was well past midnight as one of them pointed his shaking revolver at the ground in front of them. Under what remained of the bright glow of the moon, they saw the apparition rise from the earth, reaching its long, bony arms for the cowering group of men. Like their sisters, the men ran off to the safety of their homes, only to tell of their horrifying ordeal to neighbors and friends as the sun rose and the dark and foggy streets clamored with the living once more. The following night, as the story unfolded across Brooklyn, a large group of 200 concerned residents and spectators gathered near the lot of the incident. The pitchfork mob waited and waited through the long and cold night, but nothing came. They grew impatient as the night grew longer and more silent. They dispersed soon after and went home feeling as if they had been fooled. The following night, a man named Peter Wolfel set out to dispel the claims that a ghost lurks the 27th Ward. Peter, a skeptical man, set out late at night only to return back home just past 1 a.m. Witnesses say Peter had returned white as the ghost herself. He was visibly traumatized by something he encountered on an empty lot between Irving Avenue and Knickerbocker Avenue. Peter goes on to tell them how he was crossing the empty lot when he was confronted by the ghostly woman. He was paralyzed in fear, unable to flee. According to the story, the ghost performed the serpentine dance while he remained rooted to the ground. Peter then went on to say that he was only able to move once the ghost gave out blood-curdling wails before vanishing into thin air. It was Peter's story that incited the mob once more. For the following night, a larger crowd had gathered to catch a glimpse of the supposed ghostly apparition in Brooklyn. However, the fog was so thick at night 
that one could hardly see a few feet in front of them. The mob once more disbanded and headed home in disappointment. They did agree to meet once more after the fog lifted. Until then, they were to ask the local police for a hand in the matter. The 20th Precinct got the word about the ghostly figure and, more important to them, the 300 or so potential marauders. Captain Keitzer sent along a squad of his men and a patrol wagon to catch the ghost. By then, a reporter for the New York Times went out to the scene only to find hundreds of armed men searching for the supposed specter. They carried revolvers, axes, swords, and someone even wore a full-armored suit as a joke. However, amidst the chaos and spectacle, no ghostly image was ever seen. The reporter interviewed Policeman Holliday, who was in charge that night. "'I'll tell you something on the quiet,' Holliday said. "'I don't believe in these here ghost stories. If there's ghosts around, why haven't I seen them?' The reporter nodded in agreement. "'I'll tell you what I think it is,' Holliday continued. "'I think it's the whiskey. The worst whiskey that's sold on the island is sold right here on the 20th. I've known men after drinking it to go home and rob their own houses, and it'll make a man see almost anything – ghosts, snakes, or anything else. I'm disgusted with the ghost business. It makes me sick. At the same time, if a ghost comes, I'll run it in." The ghostly woman failed to appear that night, and the large crowd had finally began to fizzle down. The reporter would later write a short article about the incident mainly chalking it up to excitement and craze caused by bad whiskey. However, the few terror-stricken people who encountered the wailing ghost would never forget that frightful, foggy night in the streets of Brooklyn. Thanks for listening to this Weekend Archive episode of Weird Darkness. If you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, consider becoming a patron. I post patron-only content and bonus materials as well, including chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. If you did like the episode, please Share a link to this episode with a couple of your friends and leave a rating and review of the show in the podcast app that you're using right now. I might read your review here in the podcast. Stay up to date on everything I'm doing with my newsletter. It's The Marler Sheet. It's free and you can sign up for it right now at WeirdDarkness.com or look for the link in the show notes. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and more. I've got links to all of my social media at the top of the page at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me for this special Weekend Archives episode of Weird Darkness. <laughs>